Welcome, everyone. Um, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Itai Erez. And I'm Anjan Lee. Uh, the word Grox, as we've previously discussed a couple times now, comes from the renowned 1961 science fiction novel Stranger in a Strange Land. It is a verb, which means to perceive a subject so deeply that one no longer knows it, but rather understands it on a fundamental level. And of course, that's exactly what we hope to do here on the Grok Science Show. Every other week, we'll be live on the air, giving you tidbits of science news, hoping to have all of us grok the world around us to the fullest extent possible. You can email us at grokscience at gmail.com. That's just a single S, despite the fact that really the show's name would contain two if you were to put groks and science next to one another. Uh, you can also tweet us at grokscience, again, just a single S, uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or topic suggestions. As always, I also invite any listeners to tweet directly at me using the Twitter handle etaie. That's I-T-T-A-I-E. So without any further ado, let's move on to some science news. What you got for us, Andre? All right. Well, so uh, if you haven't already heard today, uh, this this news may not make as much of a splash as the last one, but uh, LIGO announced today, uh, in collaboration with Virgo and the LSC, that they detected a second gravitational wave on the 26th of December, 2015. So what's the deal again with these gravitational waves? Yeah, so again, this was a uh, uh, predicted by Einstein back in his original theory of uh, uh, special relativity actually a uh, general relativity um that that uh, uh if you that gravity can only travel at the speed of light you know and sure. therefore that's where causality can come from uh otherwise if if uh, these gravi gravitation was felt before an event actually happened of course then uh causation would be violated it's like time travel yeah be just gravity. yeah Gravity time travel, basically. Uh, but so these events are just on a, such a massive scale. Uh, in particular, it takes literally two black holes merging into each other to actually create these sort of gravitational waves. And so we've only just now been able to uh, develop the technology to the point where we can actually start detecting them. Uh, turns out, though, that these events are happening pretty frequently. Uh, you know, This is based off the second detection today? Yeah, this is based okay. off the second detection today. And so uh, it turns out both these... Uh, uh, what they call they call them a uh, binary black hole coalescences. So they're like black holes that are like hanging out. Two black holes that are oh, best yeah. buds, mm -hmm. and they're like circling around each other and stuff. I'm imagining. Absolutely, and they're and just they so in love with each other. each other that eventually that they just they're like collapse. make out with me now. Yes, and then they just push their <laughs> holes against one another. Exactly. Nice. And so uh, you can detect these sort of like periodic changes in um, literal space time. Right, and then so we can uh, start de once we start detecting these uh, periodic um, movements in space time. What's the what's the actual detection method here? Right. So, you, uh, have you heard of the in an interferometer? No. It measures so, interference. I'm assuming. Yes, it does. In in, in a way, uh, it measures by interference. By interference, yes. like bi. No, by. Oh, bi. By What's by interference? So, well, measuring something by interference oh, means I see, that. I see. Uh, so, what you have is like. Uh, um, in this case, like a laser or some sort of a wave that travels through something, it gets split up into two. That's right. And that's then right. Uh, you have now. one arm and the second arm. And then so based on the interference patterns, you can uh, basically measure the difference between the length of the two arms. There shouldn't be a difference if there's not interference. Right? Exactly. Right. And then when they see that there's these gravitational waves happening, mm -hmm. they detect an actual difference in the it's the length of the arms. Yes, the Is length that... of the arms. They can tr calculate it to less than the size of an atom. Wow. Yeah. 
Wait, less than the size of an uh, atom? Yep. Like, what are we talking here? Like, nucleus resolution or, like, uh, electron? Yeah, yeah, wow. basically, yeah. That's insane. Well, well uh, it's, it's about the uh, resolution of a nucleus, but it's basically the whole electron cloud included with it. It sure. can measure smaller than that. Wow. Yeah. And then so uh, what happens is, again, these uh, black holes, they start uh, going around each other. And so as... Uh, you can think of it as one black hole being uh, closer to the Earth than the other black hole, and it covers up the other black hole. And in that mm. way, you so we literally point, just can't even see it. Yeah. So okay. so think of it as light or whatever. Um, at that point, when the other black hole is behind the other black hole, uh, you can only feel the gravity of a single black hole. Okay. Whereas when they're sideways, you can feel the gravity of both of them. And this this right. sort of as they're rotating around each other, you uh, they 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 just they have this sort of periodic change in space time because of gravity, um, and so as these black holes start coalescing um, and coming into each other and eventually they spiral into each other and like you know collapse are they so wait they, they there's a point where which they come together and they collapse yes, that's right but are they like making sporadic contacts before that uh, not as far as we can tell okay perhaps they might be but uh, we just don't have the resolution to see that um, but these uh, yeah as these black holes spin together and get closer and closer and closer the uh, frequency of these uh, oscillations that we can detect in space-time actually get faster and faster and faster until they the, the signature is basically that eventually it just collapses Okay, so wait, we can actually detect these gravitational waves. It's it's not a detection of the collapse event, right? Yeah, it's the detection of the spinning around each other and the and the uh, coming towards the collapse. So do we have, like, particular black holes that we know about, that we've looked at, that are the putative cause of these gravitational waves that we've found? Uh, well, uh, it's kind of hard to see a black hole. Sure, because <laughs> it is dark like the night sky. Indeed. Um, so we can see gamma ray bursts that we presume to come from black holes, um, but this is a, a detection of presumably two black holes co colliding, well, uh, collapsing into each other. Um, it's theoretically possible that it could also be a neutron star hmm. uh, because they're massive enough to uh, be to emit a detectable signal on Earth. Uh, but in this case, in both the previous case and this one. Um, uh, using calculations, we proved at least with 99% certainty that it, it, neither of the masses are a neutron star. So they must be black holes. Or it could be something else that we don't understand yet. But Does, does detection of the gravitational wave allow us to have any kind of inference about where in the universe this event might be transpiring? Oh, yeah. So th these happened uh, 1.4 billion light years away. But uh, is that like just in any direction? Uh, so there's like a swath of the sky that we can sort of pin it into. Okay. Um, but uh, right now, so we have two detectors, LIGO detectors. And so using only two LIGO detectors, there are a multitude of areas that the events could have happened in. Um, they're working on actually adding more LIGO detectors in India as well as in Europe. And once we have those, we can precisely where, pinpoint where are the ones where right are. now? They're uh, in the United States. I believe one is in Louisiana. I think the one is up somewhere in the Northwest. Nice. Think um, North Dakota or something US remote like that. Yeah, America number one. Yeah, the NSF science, funded all this, which so. usually is not the case. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, now there are we know that uh, these events are happening relatively frequently, uh, as far as we can detect. Um, furthermore, it's really you know this is further proof that the first one just wasn't a mistake, it's like a fluke or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So wait, can we just for a moment get back to the more basic element here? These gravitational waves, mm -hmm. they are. They are these waves that are traveling through space. Yes. And they are not faster than light. They travel exactly at the speed exactly of light. Exactly at the speed of light. It's gravity traveling at the speed of light. Yes. What does it actually do to the matter? Like, would 
Would do, do objects close to this feel the wave as it hits them? Is it like a yeah, pull so, towards the holes? Towards right. The black holes? So, so what physically happens on the Earth is that uh, physical space time kind of gets stretched. In nice. A way. Um, it's 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 hard it's hard to really kind of uh, explain this. Um, there's this sort of a duality of like what we perceive in actual reality is, and as far as we can tell, reality is what we perceive, right? And yeah, so what happens? Because well, we have nothing aside from our perception to base right. that on. And so what happens is that uh, gravity can actually interact with photons, right? And okay. then so we see this sort of effect uh, when a star happens behind another star. Um, you can see what's called a lensing effect. It sort of looks like a halo around the original star, and it's mm -hmm. the image of the. Uh, of the uh, uh, star behind it getting lensed around by the gravity it's like of a the star, star in front eclipse. of it. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a star eclipse, except you can f see the full image of the star that's behind the original star, except it's gotten lensed and inverted. It, like, that's so the very light, strange. Yeah, so the light moves outwards, you know, all around, yeah. but then as it reaches near the star, the, the star that's in front of it, the uh, gravity of the, uh, the the star in front of it will actually bend all the light waves into so a focal point, like a and, then turn, and okay. it gets inverted like a lens. That's right? so cool. And so in this way, uh, in these uh, when these black holes collide, um, it... it, it, sh it it warps t uh, space-time in that sort of way. And then so basically all our perceptions of time, all our perceptions of light, everything sort of gets like either, you know, to put it simply compressed or expanded. Yeah. Right. And so physically, as far as we can measure, the Earth actually gets compressed and expanded. Wow. Yeah. So, so what's like... They're detecting this by the difference in those distances of those lasers, basically. Yes. What's actually the difference in... The, you were mentioning earlier that they have the ability to detect a difference of, like, a, a, a nucleus of an atom. Thick. Basically, yes. Is that, like, the level at which it's being compressed or expanded? Yes, that's right. Wow. <laughs> it's incredible. So it's, like, a barely detectable thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these, uh, these detectors are kilometers long. Goodness. Yes. <laughs> that's insane. That's so cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. All right, awesome. Well, on to something totally different. Uh, this is going to perhaps be very interesting to those of you who care a lot about the environment. Uh, there was recently a paper published in Science called Rapid Carbon Mineralization for Permanent Disposal of Anthropogenic Carbon Dioxide Emissions. All right, what does that mean in English, Itai? In English, I would uh, call it... A solution to carbon pollution? Oh. Question mark. Mm. Okay. Um, <laughs> so global warming is a huge problem. That's the consensus among scientists, and it's pretty indisputable. Uh -huh. If you don't think that, and you're listening to this show, uh, I would invite you to listen to this show more regularly. Maybe we can talk you out of your delusion. Or uh, just email us. Yeah, send us, us an email. Comments. Let us know what you think, why it is that you don't believe in global warming, and we'll tell you why you're wrong and should change your mind. Again, that's, uh, yeah, that's Grok Science, G-R-O-K-S. C I E N C E <laughs> at, at gmail.com. Gmail One S. That was that was close. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so a lot of the issues that are coming from global warming are due to you know, or the, the reason that this is a big deal is because basically we have these emissions of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide, okay, CO two, mm -hmm. uh, which gets these gases get caught in the atmosphere. Uh, it's actually estimated that about half of all the CO2 that's emitted from human activities, like burning fossil fuels... Or passing gas. Well, yes, actually, yes. Passing <laughs> gas is among those activities. That's especially big for, uh, for cows. For cows, yes. Yeah, so, that's so right. we got a lot of cows, and they fart a lot. <laughs> um, so it's estimated that roughly half of all the emitted carbon dioxide from human activities gets caught in the atmosphere. So it's uh -huh. a lot. Um, and basically what happens is that this greenhouse gas of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases absorb infrared radiation, and okay. they heat up... 
sure. the planet's atmosphere, right? They, sure. pre they prevent infrared radiation from being able to leave. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, what happened here is that researchers in Iceland actually have discovered a way to trap carbon dioxide underground by changing it into rock. Wow. Essentially what they do is they inject carbon dioxide into volcanic rocks hmm. to trigger a reaction that forms new carbonate minerals, possibly locking the gas up in rocks forever. Wow. Uh, it's really exciting stuff, yeah. They're doing it, I think, in uh, basalt rocks. Uh, and the reason they're doing it there is because other types of rocks lack the necessary amount of calcium, magnesium, and iron-rich silicate minerals. I see. These are basically like mineral precursors of uh -huh. other element types that are required to form carbonate minerals when you add carbon dioxide. Oh, very cool. Uh, basaltic rocks, luckily, have... Uh, up to 25% of their weight comprised of these elements. Hmm. They're highly reactive with the carbon dioxide. And also very luckily, they're one of the most abundant rock types on Earth. That's very fortunate. Uh, it's estimated they cover approximately 10% of continental surface area and most of the ocean floor. Hmm. Um, and basically, what these researchers did is they injected uh, 175 tons of pure carbon dioxide uh, into the ground, and wow. they also tried injecting a mixture of carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide gas. The reasoning behind that was that uh, it's another gas that's often mixed in with greenhouse gas emissions, and mm -hmm. so this this whole technique, this whole idea of reducing uh, our greenhouse gas emissions this way is called carbon capture and storage. Okay, sure. And so a lot of the cost of that is actually dominated by the ca cost of capture and gas emissions. Uh, and so basically the reason that they did it with hydrogen sulfide as well is to see if it could work with a mixed gas so that you don't have to worry about isolating any particular gas to do Very this. Very cool. Um, they used a heavy isotope of carbon mm -hmm. so that they could actually sure, track it specifically. It. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, and it was interesting, actually. They kept having this issue with one of the pumps that they were using, injecting into the ground, breaking down. Okay. And they were like, what's wrong with this? We don't understand <laughs> what's going on. They hauled it up out of the ground, and they found out the thing was coated in a mineral called calcite. Wow. And this calcite had a heavy carbon tracer in it, meaning that it was a product of the carbonation I they see, were trying to, trying to perform. Uh, and so what's really, like, crazy about this is they did the analysis, right? Mm -hmm. And they found that over 95% of the gas they injected actually mineralized to different carbonate minerals wow. in less than two years. That is very cool. Uh, and the reason that they had this whole issue with the pump is because they were not expecting it to be nearly this fast. They thought mm. maybe it would mineralize in about 10 years. <laughs> uh, so they were off by about an order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And basically, I mean, the whole thing to me, it's just like this very exciting potential to curb our global warming problem. Uh, the issue that they brought up is that it needs to be scaled up significantly to do that mm -hmm. with some more bigger field tests to actually validate that this will work. And most importantly, they said uh, there's not really any commercial incentive to do this right now for sure. anyone, right? Sure. Uh, why would anyone invest the time and the money into a huge project like this? Well, maybe that's why we need a carbon tax. Yes, I would be inclined to agree. <laughs> That's very interesting, though. Do you do you? I mean, there there may only just be so much of that like uh, volcanic rock out there, though, right? I mean, it sounds like there's a ton if it mm -hmm. makes up ten percent of continental area and the majority mm -hmm. of the ocean floor. Granted, yeah, I right. think access to the ocean floor is pretty difficult a lot of places, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a ton of places where it's not so difficult, right? Yeah. I think in my mind, what's more concerning is it's like, okay, they've done this. It seems that ninety five percent of what they injected actually turned into minerals, but what's like the leakage rate over time sure, you know, sure. is how permanent of a solution is this really right and it also got me thinking i don't think that this is correct but i was wondering i was like okay if they did this then later on could foolish humans in the future after some post-apocalyptic scenario mm -hmm. go through the whole process that we've just went through again 
get these rocks and start using them to actually... But these aren't fossil fuels, right? Right, right. So I guess not. But I was... Well, we just have to find out an energetic chemical reaction that can... That will use them. Yes. Yes, and hopefully this time produce some emissions that are not as bad for the entire planet. But that's for our kids. Yeah, that's like for our kids' kids. (laughs) I'm not even... I'm going to be dead by then. Long dead. That's really interesting, though, because uh, a lot of the ways we can sort of track... Uh, humans' effect on the environment and stuff like that is basically through the changes in carbon in the min- in the minerals already as they are. Right. And so, I, you know, for future geologists, maybe thousands of years from now, uh, I, I think it'd be very interesting, like, that that would sort of be our mark if we sort of kept going on with that. It's like, oh, the Earth used to have a lot of volcanic rock. Not anymore. It's all calcite. Yeah, we <laughs> turned it all into different types of carbonate minerals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. So the other thing is that I they didn't, I don't think they even addressed this in the paper is like, is it okay to be doing this to the rock? <laughs> like, does the rock serve any kind of... Cur- so they did this in Iceland, just on some random sure, rock. Sure. It didn't really matter, right? But, like, if we're thinking about scaling this up and mm-hmm. we're saying, let's get the whole ocean floor, is that going to be chill for the ocean? Right, yeah, I don't know. That's very interesting. I, I mean, know. you know, there may be structural differences in, like, well, like how much load they can bear. Yeah, which is know? a very important question when you're talking <laughs> about the pressure of the entire seas. Right, right. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, in a way, a lot of uh, nuclear waste, how we just simply bury it under this mountain out in Colorado. Yeah. Um, I think this is a little better than that, because <laughs> at least we're turning it into something else instead of just trapping the gas right, in a right. container. Yeah. But, yeah, it's still, I don't know. Like, because I have often thought that, realistically, if I had to guess... I. If I were a betting man, why am I mm-hmm. saying if? I'm a betting man. But no one will take me on this bet, and I'm not willing to make it anyway. Uh-huh. But I'm saying if if I were to guess about how we'll actually deal with this global warming thing, uh-huh. I'd be shocked if we managed to mobilize and actually reduce our emissions. Right. I'm, I'm much more inclined to believe that we'll figure out some technological workarounds that right. allows us to take the carbon gases that are already in the atmosphere and mm-hmm. eliminate them. Right. Yeah, it would be interesting, too, in that... I feel like humanity will only really move on this until it's like you know a very drastic situation, and then once it we is actually, a drastic situation. No no, 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 exactly. But like once it becomes like you know horrendous, and then once we start acting on it, actually we'll revert a lot of the changes back to where they were previously. But then a lot of the ecosystems have already started. Yeah, to it might adapt. be too late. It might be too late, and then you know trying to change it back might be even worse too. Yes, yes. So to be so. clear, this this project is taking emissions directly from the source and injecting mm-hmm. them. This doesn't even get into all the carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. Right, right. That's a whole other thing that mm-hmm. I think we need to be focusing on is how do we remove the stuff that's already there because the, the rate of that is just increasing and we're right. just putting more up there all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, so in a little bit uh, less depressing news, though, uh, so this one is about a, a coral, right? Uh, we we discussed this last show uh, a little bit about uh, chlor- coral bleaching, um, and so if you aren't familiar with this, uh, what happens in the uh, Great Barrier Reef is uh, as the global uh, sea temperatures rise, um, algae uh, the algae that live commensally with the coral uh, actually start to uh, produce a toxic chemical. Uh, it's very similar to hydrogen peroxide, um, and due to this uh, high temperature, uh, it actually starts bleaching the coral that's uh, living with the algae. They just produce this as, as a side effect of the of higher temperature rising? That's right. Hmm. And then so a lot of this uh, coral just starts to become brittle and white, and it just simply starts dying. And actually, uh, 93% of Australia's Great Barrier Reef is now experiencing uh, coral bleaching. Oh, man. So it's a big problem. Now, so there is a little bit of hope, right? 
So this is a little bit of a good sign. Uh, it turns out some scientists looked uh, at the coral that actually died, uh, um, you know, because of the algae that got sick, uh, and then they compared it to actually the the remaining seven percent that that's actually still there, and they found a lot of significant genetic differences between the two. Between the coral. Yes. Well, mm -hmm. no, between the algae that produces okay. the toxin that kills the coral. I see. Right. And it, it and so they. Uh, predict that a lot of these uh, genetic differences um, will actually be related to this sort of stress resistance, uh, heat stress resistance. Um, uh, they a lot of the genes they did found actually were related to stress resistance. Uh, so but, the idea being that like these algae with the more resistant genes to heat stress are not going to freak out as much and make yes. this make this bad chemical. Exactly, exactly. Hy basically, a lot like hydrogen peroxide. And so perhaps uh, maybe this sort of a global temperature change has already killed off all the algae that is susceptible, or a lot of it that is susceptible. And a lot of the algae that's left actually will be uh, resistant to this sort of a global temperature change. Hmm. I wonder how resistant though, like. If right. things keep spiraling out of control with global warming the way they have been and those temperatures just keep going up, there has to be like an upper limit on the ability of a bacteria to... I mean, we've got oh, extremophiles, sure. right? Yeah, but yeah. they have their bounds. Right, exactly. So, you know, there is hope. Of course, you know, this needs to be followed up, uh, you know, actually experimentally. Though? Yeah, 93% <sighs> already gone. That's miserable. Just bleached, yeah. So... What are these algae doing there in the first place? They live commensally with yes, the, with the coral? Yes, Yep. And so it's the algae, though, that that uh, causes the the problems. What's right? commensally again? They're not they're yeah. not providing any benefit. Uh, yeah, they just live. They just together. coexist. Yeah, that's a shame. It is a shame. I, but <laughs> again, there's there's hope. There's because hope. because some of them maybe have algae on them that appears that just to be seems more resistant. to be resistant yeah. somehow. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's cross our fingers on that. <laughs> I would really like to go see the Great Barrier Reef, but now it sounds like uh, if I don't go soon, there's not going to be that much left to even look at. It's possible, but you know, who knows how you know how susceptible the remaining seven percent is, right? I feel like also I I don't know anything about the growth of coral, mm -hmm. but if I were to guess, I would imagine it is not a quickly growing oh, organism, not. right? No. So even if the seven percent has resistant strain and slowly starts growing back mm -hmm. the rest of the reef, it's like it could take. Who knows how long for it yeah. to actually get up to a reasonable size again? No, it's true. It's true. It's true. But you know, like, have you seen any of those like uh, animated cartoons, like you know, in Fantasia, like the Firebird part of Fantasia, or maybe that. Fern Gully? If no, you've never seen no. that, no. Uh, let's see. What about Bambi? Have you seen Bambi? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I mean, everything gets killed out by the fire, and then you know, it starts to regrow. Rebirth, yeah. good old phoenix, rise from the ashes yeah. type deal. So you know, maybe you never know. It's true. All right, well, while we're already kind of bummed out, we might as well continue on a slightly depressing news. Uh, some, some researchers found an association between social media use and depression among young adults in the United States. Mm. Basically, uh, there's this survey of around 1,800 adults, uh, ages 19 to 32 years old, about half of which were female, a little over half of which were white. Uh, and mainly this worked by looking at self-reported social media usage okay. in terms of time spent per day, visits per week, and mm -hmm. something called a global frequency score based on a Pew Internet Research questionnaire. Uh -huh. uh, and then it also assessed depression using what's called the Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System, okay. or PROMIS. Uh -huh. uh, and that's the depression scale. Uh, it's basically a short-form questionnaire uh, by asking people... It works by asking people how frequently they've experienced... Hopelessness, worthlessness, helplessness, or depression in the past week or so. Mm. 
So just to be clear, though, this isn't actually classifying depression or clinically diagnosing depression in all these people. This is kind of just a, a scale that might indicate if someone could be depressed. I see. If they're sure. more inclined, more or less inclined sure. to being depressed. Sure. Um, and basically what they found in this study is that participants who were in the highest quartile for total time spent per day on social media mm -hmm. had a significantly increased odds ratio for depression. Oh, wow. It was 1.66. Hmm. So, and that's, that's just in terms of total time spent per day. So if, if you're spending per unit of time, I think it was probably an hour sure. that you spend on social media usage per day, you're 1.66 times as likely to be hmm. in, inclined towards depression as someone who's not spending that time there. I wonder if like that's more correlated with how long you are on social media overall or like how frequently like short bursts you do, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that they actually looked into if it's a linear type response thing right, right, where it's just too. like slowly increasing over time or if it's like maybe asymptotic. I don't sure, know. Right, I don't right. know what it is really. Um, so that, that was already kind of bad, obviously. Mm -hmm. But then they also found that the people who had the highest number of social media site visits uh -huh. per week and higher global frequency of that Pew score that I mentioned earlier, okay. uh -huh. uh, those people actually have an odds ratio of 2.74 okay. for increased depression hmm. over like the lowest quartile for mm -hmm. those same mm -hmm. scores. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they included covariates in this analysis as well sure, to try sure. to eliminate some confounding factors, including age, mm -hmm. which they binned really strangely, actually. They had three age groups, 19 to 23, 24 to 26, and 27 to 32, Hmm. I didn't really understand the motivation behind those since the, none well, of them you know, are the, the same ins. number. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's just strange to me that the I bins... I imagine with the bins, though, that the mass of the bins are the same. Oh, like, like the, the number of individuals yeah. that they have within each bin? Yes, yeah. like that was probably, probably, probably part of the motivation behind it. So they had age, uh -huh. uh, five mutually exclusive ethno-racial groups, okay. relationship status, mm -hmm. living situation, mm -hmm. household income, and mm -hmm. education level. Hmm. So it's a decent number of covariates. Sure. Uh, and they selected these people via apparently random digit dialing, which <laughs> to me is insane to think about just, just uh, hitting random numbers. AKA cold calling. Yeah, literally <laughs> cold calling, yeah. Uh, and some address-based sampling. Wow. But the whole thing to me is wow. just uh, kind of upsetting because I feel like you know, I, so I recently actually deleted the Facebook app off my phone because oh, I sure. was like, I don't need to check this on my phone. Right, Checking right. It on the computer isn't yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that has been nice, but I know, I don't feel like I use it terribly much, but I mm -hmm. know of, I, I feel like everyone that I know who's younger than me, and uh -huh. e as you get younger, this increases even more, sure. their usage of it is through the roof. Right. Like, I feel like very young people, mm -hmm. like my little sister, for example, is yeah. six years younger than me, mm -hmm. and she just, she just gets orders of magnitude more likes on things than I do. <laughs> and it's like, that's the common occurrence for her. Like, my my Facebook highlight of the year is, like, uh -huh. her daily deal, right? <laughs> um, and so this idea that this is associated with depression is kind of concerning to me because it seems like as time goes on, more and more people are using this more and more frequently. Right. Well, you got to think about, like, the causality of it all, right? Like, perhaps maybe people who tend to be more depressed are, are already on, going on there more. Yeah, sure. are going on there more. Or, you know, whether or not forcing somebody to go on Facebook more will just cause them to be depressed. Which sure. I mean, I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> well, it, it, that makes sense, actually, in my mind, because, you know, like in general, uh -huh. people are 
how do you define what a person is, right? I mean, right. how do you even tell yourself? We all have these stories of ourselves that we're constantly telling ourselves about mm-hmm. who we are, who we believe ourselves to be, what characteristics we say we have and want to think of ourselves as. Right. And I think the social media version of that is, and so that story already is mm-hmm. kind of, in my mind, actually a narrower version of yourself than what actually exists. Oh, yeah. It's, it's sort of a caricature, right? Yes, because yeah. you're, you're not giving yourself credit where credit is due some places, and you're probably also not recognizing a lot of your faults, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and and a lot of other things, people don't probably, I think, have a very accurate perception of themselves in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you restrict that to the social media world where everyone else sees it and has right. their ability to react to it, right. it's like all you're going to put forward is are the things that seem the best to you. Exactly. Right? right and right. so, you know, there's this effect that people have talked about about, oh, it seems like everyone else is having more fun and being on social media just makes you think that your life sucks because everyone yeah. else is just putting out all this good stuff all the time, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, well, you know, social media is just like a different beast like altogether you know the rules of the game are just different you know like when you hang out with your friends like you know somebody says something witty it's like oh haha, maybe they're a funny person yeah or like you know you say something serious they like you right but like the rules of the social media game is that like you know it has to be very easy to digest yes you, you got to be able to get it in like five seconds right it's you know kind of less preferably. or less yeah yeah, yeah. like you know it, it, it's a, it, it goes towards the lowest common denominator Absolutely. you know and so in a way, you know, perhaps you may be very good at, like, getting likes, right? But really... What does that really what mean? What does that really mean? Yeah, it's kind of meaningless. Yeah. I mean, the whole... Uh, to be honest, so I I had a period in college where I just deleted it, and uh-huh. I didn't have it. That was uh-huh. really nice. I lived a lot yeah, more oh, yeah. presently, and I didn't yeah. think about it. I came back to it and stay with it mainly because I really like the number of photos that I oh, have yeah. available of me and my youth that yeah. I didn't have to take right, or catalog right, right, at all. Right. Um, and it's crazy because I, you know... Like, I think about my parents, and I've seen maybe four or five photos of them mm-hmm. from when they were younger. My kids are going to have access to ridiculous troves of <laughs> photo albums of me, for better or for worse. Yeah, right. Time to worse release Facebook when you have a kid. Yes, actually, probably. <laughs> I don't know. So, I, I don't know. It's just the whole thing is uh, is very upsetting to me, just because, thinking about the fact that younger generations seem yeah. to be using it even more. But it, it is true what you're saying, this issue with the causality. There's no way to really know mm-hmm. uh, in that case, unless you, you know, did some longitudinal thing and forced people yeah. to use social media. Well, it seems like you're getting depressed right now talking about yeah, it. Yeah, so. well, yes. I, yes. It is lame. It is very lame. It's a huge waste of time. It, just yeah, live in the oh present. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, not to say that, not to say Facebook is all completely bad, right? That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Aside from the photos, it is completely bad. I think, you know, it's beneficial because it keeps people together, you know? Yeah, I guess. I'd rather Skype with people. I'd rather see people. I mean, the the best is to see people in person. Oh, yeah. If I can't do that, I'd rather video conference so I can see their (laughs) It's like, I can't even talk on the phone to people, man. I don't understand what people are saying. A, because I have bad hearing, but yeah. even when I can hear what they're saying, it's like, I don't know what all the hidden meaning is, because I can't see oh, yeah. no, that's any that's of true. them. I don't see their facial true. expression or body language or anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though you can't smell them. Just... I can't smell them in person either, so. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a bad nose and bad ears. <laughs> all right, so, uh, on to something different. Um, so this is about a uh, uh, this, this species of lizards. Uh, they're found in eastern Australia. They're called the central bearded dragons. Ooh, bearded dragons. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, so uh, we kind of discussed this uh, last show as well a little bit. Um, so this whole idea of sex is, is really strange and fluid in the animal kingdom. Right? Sure. Uh, of course, there are two main ways that we classify how you can determine sex in an animal. Um, there's, of course, the genetic way. 
or genomic way or chromosomal way or you know however it works um and then there's an environmental way right and so a lot of species like for, uh, for example certain types of amphibians uh based upon the temperature or elevation at which the uh, embryos were incubated at uh they'll either turn into a male or a female of course the other flip side is like humans or most other uh vertebrates out there and stuff like that is basically uh you can have a heterogamete sex or a, a homogamete comedic sex. Where you, right. again, like in humans, if you're XX, you're female. Uh, that's the uh, homogametic sex. And then if you're XY, you're male. So the gametes are these individual chromosomes. Yes, that's right. And and basically, it just your sex is inherently determined by what chromosomes you receive. Yes, chromosomes, yeah. genetics, you know, it could... It, it, Actually, it can be a single gene translocated onto a different chromosome, so sure. it's, you know, it's a bit complicated. Um, but anyway, uh, these central bearded dragons in Australia actually can do both, surprisingly. They, they can have it determined either way? Yes. So mm. they, they can be uh, genetically determined, um, but actually, if you incubate their embryos at too high of a temperature, um, the male embryos turn into females. But what's really strange about them is that, of course, they still, they're chromosomally still males, right? Yeah. Um, but then they develop like males. And so they actually, behaviorally, they actually behave like males as well. So they're actually super aggressive. Um, they, like, go out and, you know, hunt and stuff like that. Except they lay eggs. Hmm. Completely viable eggs. And they need other males who are yeah, not, yes. who are not uh, behaviorally female to, to fertilize them? Yes, that's correct. They can't fertilize them themselves, I'm they assuming, can't. since they're laying yeah. their eggs. Interesting. Uh, right. And so what's really strange and interesting here, um, this is kind of depressing again, is that this is temp controlled by temperature. Yeah. Right? And so the actual effects of global warming can actually be very important here. And so uh, what this paper came out with is that it was a population genetic study. Is actually, in, in some particular cases, it's very possible for the these uh what they call these super super uh females super females <laughs> yeah the they call them super females because they're men it's <laughs> so misogynistic oh my god they're physically bigger the patriarchy will, has but... won with the bearded dragons <laughs> yes good lord but these super females can actually replace the genetic females within an entire population so then you've just got a bunch of men yes some of whom lay eggs yes that sounds terrible yes Wow. Yeah. Like, in my it's mind, like, females are the only things that are keeping the world from collapsing at the edges. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think bearded dragons have a lot of civilization. Yeah, but well. If they know. do, it's going to be gone if this continues. <laughs> They're just gonna, all going to kill each other. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, are these, are these yeah. uh, egg-laying male uh, bearded excuse dragons? Excuse me, super female. Super female, excuse me. Are these egg laying, <laughs> so are these super female bearded dragons like uh, visibly very different from other males? Uh, mostly they're very, they, they look just like males, mostly. Really? Aside yeah. from the whole laying an egg thing. Yeah. What about... And I'm sure they, they you know, I, I don't know the specific details, but I'm pretty sure they'll still engage in like female courtship. Well, like courtship as a female with other normal sure. males. So, so their genitalia are female. Yes, their okay. genitalia are female. So the, the designation, wild. the super female thing, and the designation as kind of this male behavior is mostly based on how they act. Yeah, how they act, how they look. Right. Because yeah. so I, in bearded dragons, what's the what's the actual difference between males and females in terms of how no, they look? I don't know. Um, you know, the the male dragon tends to have a longer tail. Mm. Uh, they also have a higher resting body temperature. Okay. Um, you know, they they go out and uh, act bold. Like you know, they're more likely to like you know fight other animals. Right. Yeah. But they got they got beards across all sexes here. <laughs> I would presume so. Oh wow. I'm not. I'm not quite. That sure would not about work that. with humans. Yeah. That'd be pretty. That'd be pretty 
unacceptable <laughs> for a lot of people, myself included. Hey, maybe somebody would be into that. So, you know? I, no, I'm sure tons of people are into it. I got no doubt. Yeah, I but, mean, you know, men are already into other men. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just I've never understood the appeal of the facial hair personally. Yeah, but that's also because I am <laughs> I'm just jealous because I'm not capable of growing a significant amount of facial hair still <laughs> at 25 years old. Yeah, well, maybe you just need to eat more uh, more meat or something. Testosterone filled foods. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or just testosterone. Just straight testosterone. You can, you know. I could. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> There's a lot of things I could do. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so basically the idea is with this global warming, if things continue, maybe the bearded dragons will just have males and super females only, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's not that weird in a way because you yeah. know at, at some point you can only imagine that you know a lot of these environmentally induced uh, species may have been like genetically male and female previously. Yeah. You know, and then sure. as as the species continue to evolve, maybe move up like higher into the mountains or like move into like some other weird environment that, you know, just like bearded dragons, th these things can just simply change. So is this something that they like just recently observed among wild populations or uh, I'm not I it was probably pretty well known about okay. this this change but the uh, population genetic impl implications have, have only just been published I see they didn't give any statistics about like uh, the proportion of each of these different types of sexes in the population did they uh, I feel like that'd sure. be hard to uh, yeah. measure and, and again it literally depends on temperature sure right? okay yeah, yeah. well while we're on the subject of how humans are ruining the earth still uh, <laughs> I read another paper that estimated that the Milky Way is no longer visible to roughly a third of all of humanity. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, using a high religion... So this, this paper uh, is in Science Advances. It's called The New World's Atlas of Artificial Night Sky Brightness. Okay. And basically what they did is they used high-resolution satellite data and precision sky brightness measurements. Mm -hmm. uh, this international team of researchers found that 80% of the world and more than 99% of the U.S. and European populations live under light-polluted skies. Yes, uh, I will attest to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, in Chicago, we see that all the time. Oh, or rather, yeah. we don't see it because we <laughs> just look up and see nothing, right? right. Uh, so they estimated, actually, they made these cool maps. I would definitely go look at this. And Vox mm. also published an interesting okay. article uh -huh. about this if you're looking for further perspective. Uh, so they made these cool maps of the U.S. and Europe, and what these maps displayed is that the Milky Way is actually hidden from view for 60% of Europeans and 80% of North Americans Good Lord. due to light pollution. Uh, and, and what was really depressing about this, from my perspective, was that it's not like just in the cities. It's not just because uh -huh. most people oh, live in wow. the city. Yeah, I was going to say. The, the glow from the lights in the city is so strong, and there's so much light that it's actually even reaching out into the outskirts of unpopulated areas as well. Wow. Polluting the light. Uh, polluting the night sky there and making it difficult to see the natural light of the universe. Mm. Uh, I was like looking at the U.S. map that they mm -hmm. produced, and it's mm -hmm. pretty crazy. So you know, I grew up in Kentucky, where there's uh -huh. not you know, it's, there's no huge cities. I mean, you've got sure. Louisville, you've got Lexington. That's uh -huh. basically it in terms of large population masses. Um, but including there, it was also like there was completely covered in in artificial light brightness on this map. Right. And the only huh. places actually in the U.S. that looked like you'd still be able to see the Milky Way are like out west before you hit California. I see. Like I see. Uh, in the Pacific Southwest and sure. Northwest a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, but even those are slowly getting worse, they were saying, as the cities get bigger and bigger. Wow. Um, and it's just a real bummer because, you know... Like, the times in my life where I have gotten to see the night sky without that much light pollution, it's so incredible. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. And it really puts things it's into awing. perspective. Yes, yeah. yes. It makes you feel small. It really does. Um, but I, I guess part of me while I was reading this, 
so that's that's my personal feeling is that it's mm-hmm. totally worth seeing Night Sky just for the aesthetic beauty and the philosophical feeling that it gives you, right? right this right, oneness right. with the universe. But you know, I could hear people saying, "Okay, well, why should I care outside of the aesthetics of being able to look at the night sky?" Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care. So, other reasons that they gave in this study for why we should work on this: okay. uh, light pollution can disrupt our sleep. This mm-hmm. is well known already. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it messes with wildlife. Oh yeah, no, I can attest to that too. Because you know, in Chicago. Like, at 3, 4 in the morning, these birds outside of my window, yeah. they just won't stop chirping. I'm like, it's 3 in the morning. You shouldn't <laughs> be up right now, and I shouldn't be up because of you, that's for sure. Ugh. Um, yeah, it definitely messes with wildlife. It's also wasteful, and like I was saying before, it makes us lose our sense of place in the universe when, mm-hmm. we, can't, when we can't see it. Uh, possible solutions that the authors posited in this paper... We could have a full shielding of lights. Basically, don't allow any light sources to directly send light oh. at or above the horizon. A light dome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we could use the minimum light required for the task at hand. Okay. Uh, we could shut off light or lower the levels of light substantially when an area is not in use, which is like low-hanging fruits. And yeah, sounds... but what about like street lights, though? So that's a great example. You know, like street lights, they're just they're just set to basically be constantly on yeah. between certain hours, right? Right. And it would be a lot better if there was some system where they turned on when people were actually near and needed them, right? Yeah, everyone a ton could of just them. carry flashlights. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that's a really viable solution. Or just stay home. <laughs> yeah, you could just stay home. You could go to sleep at a reasonable hour right. and not be out at night. Uh, what was like the most depressing thing in this whole paper is at the very end, I think this was just to scare people, the authors speculate that there's two, only two possible scenarios for the future. Either... The current generation is the final generation to experience this level of light pollution in the world as we find out some way to successfully control pollution (laughs) of the light. Or the world continues to brighten to the point where almost the entire population never experiences any view of stars in the night sky. Well, so I I kind of have a related story to that. Um, When I was growing up, I grew up in Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every once in a while, you know, as you will hear on the news, hurricanes come through Florida. You know, and every once in a while, they'll do just a ridiculous amount of damage. Yeah. And so when I was 13, a a hurricane came, knocked out all the lights, you know. And then, you know, it was was great because everybody in the community, all the refrigerators went out. So, you know, you'd have a great big barbecue with all your neighbors. You'd go out and hang out during the day because, you know, you don't have to go to school. You you can't go into work. Yeah. You know, it's hot. It's really hot. But, you know, it's it's fun. But, you know, you go out at night, though. It's just crystal clear skies, no light pollution. You can see all the stars, right? Mm. So maybe if we keep burning up fossil fuels as it is you know keep, maybe keep the we'll global warming going yeah we'll make the hurricane more frequency. hurricanes you know <laughs> knock out more power lines and you know maybe the solution solves itself <laughs> yeah we won't have to worry about light pollution because the earth is too polluted for us to it's it's fighting back yeah with exactly the climate, so and we can't even make light anymore so there's your third possibility <laughs> perfect perfect i mean it is a bummer like i the only places in my life where I've ever really seen like really beautiful night sky, I think, uh-huh. are uh, summer camp in Wisconsin, mm. uh, traveling in like South Africa and Israel. And aside from that, yeah, nothing really. Like it's hard. It's hard to find good places for it. Yeah, and you know, and the cl- skies have to be clear too. Yes. So yes. You know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> a uh, different story on uh, something different. This uh, Ita, you might like this a lot. From oh, yeah. Your personal experiences. So, um, what this group, research group, did at the University of Michigan, um, they basically uh, created synthetic pig bones. Synthetic pig bones. Yeah, I mean, synthetic is mm. a bit of a stretch, but okay. So, to, to, to give a little bit of background, um, you know, when we break our arms or something, you know, our bones can heal in sort of like a limited sort of way. Um, but if you remove a lot of bone, you know, that's 
that can be a real problem. Sure. Right? <laughs> and so, like, how do you repair something like that? And then uh, even when you do repair something like that, it's sort of like the sort of mix between uh, art and medicine, you know? Uh, when you're trying to reconstruct facial bones, or for example, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be able to really carve out, you know, whatever donor bone you have and carve it out pretty well and then be able to put it where it needs to go and have it heal right. Additionally, you got to figure out where you're going to take the rest of the bone from. So it's a really annoying process. It's basically. a very annoying process. Yeah. So uh, another alternative to that is actually uh, what these uh, researchers have done now. Um, so they took out this uh, jawbone, like a big chunk of jawbone from pigs, um, mm-hmm. and it's very structurally important. In fact, uh, it's uh, the bo- the part of the bone that has the most stress on it when you chew. So they took this out in uh, in some pigs. They took this from dead pigs, live pigs, live pigs, live pigs. That's Rough. right. And then so they took it out from these pigs, and then they uh, cut it out, and then they took a bone from cows, and then they basically eliminated all living material from it so that you just have this scaffold left of okay. just uh, protein and, you know, whatever minerals are in the bone. And then what they did with that is that they uh, uh, injected these um, uh, stem cells that they extracted from pig fat, from, mm-hmm. from the very same pigs. They, they extract stem cells from their pig, from their back. Uh, from the fat, and then they injected it into the bone, and then um, into the cow bone. Yeah, into the uh, no longer cow bone. Yeah, the yeah. scaffold. Yeah, sure. And then so uh, one important thing that they did was they actually covered the entire cow bone so that the uh, cells can actually permeate all the way into the center mm-hmm. of the uh, bone. Um, in a separate group, they actually just simply poured it onto it, um, and then like the cells didn't permeate all the way into the cell. Well, into the inner structures of the uh, bone. Of the bone scaffold yeah, thing. Yeah, of the bone scaffold. Yeah. And then they surgically reattached it to these pigs. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, hold on. They're surgically reattaching a bone from a cow yeah. onto a pig? Yeah. That can't be the right proportions. Yeah. No, oh, right. So I, I forgot to mention one step. Uh, they So they have, like, the bone that they took out, right? Yeah. And then so they used a machine to actually cut out the scaffolding to the exact... To that like, size. Okay, To the exact size, shape and size. That makes more sense. Right, so it takes a little bit of the art out of, like, you know, facial reconstruction or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then well, so... Well, I mean, it takes it's the art out, but it makes it more precise. Exactly, exactly. It, it, yeah, precise replica. And then so what they did was um, they surgically reattached it, and it turns out that when you actually do this process of uh, injecting the cells into the matrix of the uh, the scaffold, um, it grows a lot better than if you just simply coat it. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, and then so they were able to, again, uh, com- uh, get a full recovery of these pigs, and again, they could chew again. Um, they like the, it can handle the same amount of stress that it formerly was able to. Wow. Um, as opposed to the uh, other group where they just simply uh, coated. coated it, coated yeah. it with the cells, and eventually uh, those uh, actually did not grow as much as the uh, injected uh, group. Um, so and it's, it's the it's the pig's own stem cells that are actually yes. growing into bone cells in there. Yeah. Do they? Um, give them any kind of, like, other bone cells from that same pig to get them going? Or did they feed them particular factors to get that? Or was it right. just so presence of generally, the scaffold enough? Yeah, right, right. I, I believe they gave it some uh, other factors, external, okay. ex- external factors Small to get molecules it to differentiate and stuff. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so again, you know, this is this is huge. You know, like the the actual physical bones were more structurally stable. Uh, they were basically a full replacement. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a full replacement, and it's not like there's no risk of rejection because it's your own. Exactly, cells. it's your own cells. There's no living material left from the cow. So this is possibly not not only like replacing bones that have undergone stress or fracture or injury in humans, mm-hmm. but 
Well, okay, so I, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but what is like the structural integrity of that bone scaffold like in cows compared to pigs? Is it comparable? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I, I would imagine it's comparable. Okay, because yeah. I'm just thinking like if there's some being that has a bone scaffolding that's much stronger than sure, ours, for sure. instance, we or replace, weaker, like sure, with whichever birds. you would prefer or need. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of potential, not just for therapy there, but also for enhancements, which oh, yeah. is really interesting right. to me. I mean, perhaps we could replace all of our bones with like bird bones. Right. And fly. And fly, just, right? Or just, just jump like 50 or, yeah. feet in the air. <laughs> Though I don't think that would work because we're just so heavy. Yeah, I don't. But, you know, yeah, it's very interesting. Like, you know, if we could make cartilage and then, you know, surgically reattach muscle, then we could just make another limb or something. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. Stuff like that is really cool, especially in the context to me of like a 3D printing. Oh, yeah. Because that's, I mean, that's got to at some point help speed that up. Because it sounds very laborious to find another organism, extract mm-hmm. its bone, remove yeah. everything that's living in there, and then <laughs> cut that scaffold to whatever you want. Yeah, and then get the stem cells and yes. inject it. Yes, and... it sounds very laborious. Yeah. But cool, that is yeah, really cool. Yeah, super cool. All right, a uh, little interesting tidbit of news here. Some confirmation this week that King Tut's dagger blade... Ooh. was made from meteorite. Oh, wow. Uh, basically, since the discovery of King Tutankhamun in 1925, the meteoritic origin of the blade, hmm. which is made out of iron, has been the subject of great dispute. Uh, there was some previous research that was actually looking at the composition of the blade. Uh, paper in, w- One paper suggested that uh, maybe it might have been meteorite- meteoritic in origin because it uh-huh. had high nickel content. Okay. Uh, but that paper was never published, and the techniques used were never disclosed. So that's basically <laughs> meaningless. Sketchy. Yeah. Uh, and then another paper in 1994 revealed uh, they used this thing called X-ray fluorescence. Oh, okay. Um, and they revealed that the, the dagger was nickel. Uh, 2.8% of its weight was nickel. Oh, okay. And they said, okay, well, that's inconsistent with meteoritic iron. And so the authors concluded it was not of meteoritic origin. Sure. Why is this even a question? Because uh, it's generally speculated that early iron objects were made from meteoritic iron. I see. Uh, The blade itself dates back to the 14th century BC. Hmm. And Egyptian culture appears to have not even developed iron smelting until the 8th century BC. I see. So this is like a solid six centuries before that. Sure, sure. And iron artifacts in general, like in the world, are just very rare until the 12th century BC. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. why is it so difficult? Why did it take so long? Uh, iron's melting point is about 1,500 degrees Celsius. I see. Which, uh, as you can imagine, earlier on in history, it was really, really hard for us to get anything hot enough to actually extract iron from sure. the iron ore, sure. if it's that temperature. Um, so, yeah, they did this with X-ray fluorescence. And basically, that works by identifying different elements based on the characteristic colors of X-ray light they give off when they're hit with higher energy X-rays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the researchers here compared the composition of the dagger's blade with that of 11 different metallic meteorites, and mm-hmm. they found it to be very similar. They actually found that the dagger is a, about 10% nickel by weight, okay. in contrast to that of roughly 3% from that 1994 study. Uh, which I think they postulated maybe this is just due to advances in the X-ray fluorescence sure, technique sure. and its, its resolution. So this strongly suggests it's meteoritic in origin. Uh, it's a paper in Meteoritics and Planetary Science, which I'd never <laughs> heard of. Uh, well, I feel like the conclusion is already given. Yes. Based, on the based off the paper that it is published in, <laughs> yes, or the journal, yeah. Uh, it's called The Meteoritic Origin of Tutankhamun's Iron Dagger Blade, if you're huh. interested in finding out more. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I wonder, like, if they had to, like, scrape off some of, like, the the blade or something like that. got rusty. Or... No, well, I mean, like, how do you even, like, get a sample from I think the they actually right? get to do this on the blade itself. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. Which is funny to me, because I feel like I heard, like, 
earlier this year about uh, King Tut's uh, sarcophagus being all messed up by someone who was just cleaning. In yeah. area or so it's like, maybe we shouldn't be messing around with this stuff too much. Especially, I don't know, I mean, just to find out what the dagger blade was made from, it's kind of a cool mystery. Right. It's like, yeah, how yeah. does he have an iron dagger blade before they had iron? Right. Um, but what else is that dagger blade doing? Like, just... It's just chilling there. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not in use, right? It's, Might as well so. do something with it. <laughs> You know, like a gift, ritual human sacrifice or something. Ooh. Or, you know. Yeah, who knows about that? I don't know if the Egyptians were really into that, but there, yeah, there well. were definitely groups that were. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what would, like, a pharaoh do with a blade anyway? Probably just carry it around. Yeah, it's like, I don't think he's slicing any, anything no, up. No, like, no way, man. He's got people to do that for him. Yeah, opening some, like, letters or something, maybe. <sighs> he probably doesn't even have to open his own letters. <laughs> it's probably just ceremonial. Right. It probably just makes him look dope. Probably did, yeah. Just like a bamf, and he's just like, "Oh yeah, don't mess with me. I got a, I got a blade made from a material we can't even make here." <laughs> All right. Well, so speaking of chemistry, though, um, if you've ever taken a look at the uh, bottom right of a uh, periodic table, you notice these uh, really funny-looking uh, elements that start with UU. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're as they're... if the other ones weren't hard enough to figure out already. Yeah, right. So it's just like an you know common curiosity you know as a, as a child I was be like oh what is that oh that's that's unum trium or unum pentium or something like of that of course you know, like one thirteen one fifteen yeah one seventeen and one eighteen just awful names <laughs> <laughs> awful awful names well uh, turns out well so first last December um, these elements were actually first originally recognized right like you know it was you know Often a bunch of like you know the debate whether or not these were actually really detected, actually whether they really yeah. existed, and so and some periodic tables actually would just simply be blanking yeah. as well. Um, so back in December, uh, the IUPAC, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, the people that you know determine a lot of these things, like determine nomenclature of chemistry and stuff like it's that. It's the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. Yes, that's I right. I feel like they should have two different organizations, <laughs> one for pure and one for applied. Uh, well, they've they've kept themselves happy. So. Right, good for them. Yeah. Uh, well, so they officially decided to recognize these four elements back in December. Um, but now, uh, there was a, after that, there was a five-month pub public comment period. Um, but now they have names. So, the names that will be officially added is uh, Nihonium. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's discovered by a Japanese team, meaning uh, Land of the Rising Sun. Okay, so, yeah. that's cool. Ni Nihonium. Right. I can and respect then, that. Yeah, there's a uh, Moscovium. Moscow, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, it, it's uh, named uh, after you know a lab in Moscow. Sure. Yeah. And then there's also uh, Tennessee. Tennessee. Was that a lab in Tennessee? T e n n e s s i n e. That's correct. And it's, it is from a lab in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's ridiculous. Yeah. We're uh, naming elements after the state of Tennessee. Yeah, I know. It's. Tennessee's all right, I guess. But <laughs> come on, El this is elements we're talking about here. These are this is the building blocks of matter. <laughs> uh, and then the final one is uh, Ogonesin. I don't. What is that? It's named after the uh, work of a Russian chemist, uh, Yuri Ogonesian. Russians got two. They got I two of these so. four. Yeah, that's baloney. Yeah. Where well, is Americanum? There, Americium. Oh, that already that is exists. With that. Okay, never mind yeah. then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. Let's see. That is number ninety-five. That's an actinoid. It's a lower number than what these ones got. Yeah, that's even so. better. <laughs> that's cool though. Wait. So when they when they added these back in December officially, was that because they had officially detected them somewhere? I I suppose so. You know, like okay. I guess these labs in Moscow or Japan or in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> That just shocks just me. Just made a very convincing measurement of these, you know, transient states. That's cool. Yeah. 
So we're going to have standardized periodic tables. No, no more of this. Yeah, it's changing. Still bottom right changing, corner yeah. nonsense. We lose Pluto, but now we get Tennessee. I'll take it. Oh, Tennessee. I'm Tennessee. Sorry. Tennessee. Tennessee. <laughs> because you're the only 10 I seen. <sighs> Does that work? Yeah. I hope not. Uh, all right. So in a study that probably didn't need to be done, in my opinion, <laughs> they found out that uh, when celebrity entertainers endorse food and non-alcoholic beverages, those food and non-alcoholic beverage items tend to be unhealthy. <laughs> Surprise. Um, <laughs> these are researchers at uh, NYU School of Medicine, School of Public Health, School of Public Service, and uh -huh. they basically looked at music celebrities that ranked high in the 2013 and 2014 Billboard Hot 100 charts. Uh-huh. Uh, and they found that they tend to endorse food and drinks that are very unhealthy. I don't. <laughs> so you're telling me purple drink ain't that great for you? I know, right? Like I just, I don't, I don't know what, why it's even something that uh, was a question in my mind. Uh, basically, what they did is they looked at these Hot 100 individuals, and they looked at 590 endorsements that were made by 163 celebrities in the sample. Uh, 65 celebrities were associated with 57 different food and beverage items owned by 38 different parent companies. 71% of the beverage endorsements promoted sugar-sweetened beverages, so that's beverages that they're adding sugar to on top of whatever sugar's already there. Uh, and then 80.8% of the endorsed foods were found to be energy-dense and nutrient-poor. Oh, um, wow. So, yeah, it just seems like bad news. They used Teen Choice Award nominations as well to measure <laughs> celebrities' popularity among youth, which I found hilarious. The youths. Yeah. Um, oh. And as it turns out, the biggest culprits of this are... Bauer? I don't even know who that is. I feel like it's probably some know. DJ. I, I don't know. Maybe if I were younger. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Will I Am, Justin Timberlake, Maroon 5, Britney Spears, Pitbull, and Jesse J huh. are, are the worst for this. Um, wow. The paper was published in Pediatrics. It's called Popular Music Celebrity Endorsements in Food and Non-Alcoholic Beverage Marketing. If you're, for some reason, interested in finding out more thoroughly that they really endorse bad food and bad non-alcoholic yeah. beverage. Well, who's going to endorse kale? Like, I mean... There's just the kale industry needs to find someone. That's the thing. They just aren't willing to throw the money at the right celebrity is the real I see, issue. I see. We need kale endorsements. Right. Because this, I mean, the whole point of this paper was like, look, kids are getting exposed to so much advertising these days. Uh -huh. and the stuff that's being advertised to them by celebrities, which is also postulated to be the most effective type of advertising. Sure. Or one uh -huh. of the most. Because people are like, oh, it's my favorite uh, singer or whatever. Right? Yeah, they know something about exactly. food. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, they're not thinking about it that much, clearly. Um, <clears throat> they're saying, you know, this has tremendous impact. We should think about this more. Uh, huh. To me, though, it's just like, I don't know, the results are kind of a big, duh. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's funny, though, because I feel like junk food kind of sells itself anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, it's so convenient, so quick, so cheap. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe they're just making their intentions clear, you know? It's like this. With this, this paper? No, well, no, with, oh, with this, the food, right? Yeah. With the celebrity endorsements. It's like, well, you know, we know these artists, maybe they're... They're, <laughs> they're junk, and so are we. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> I like Justin Timberlake and Maroon Five. Pipple's got a couple good ones, but I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I used to love Britney Spears when I was like eight. <laughs> well, if you love Britney Spears, you might like this. S then, yeah. Some random so. terrible food <laughs> item. Yeah, probably.
All right. So, uh, Itai, do you know anything about uh, this word called chirality? Yes. Chirality is when you have, like, uh, it's it's a compound in chemistry, mm-hmm. and the chiral form is, like, the mirror image, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it's right. like your left and right hands are chiral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, like, you know, in a lot of, uh, um, you know, biomolecules, especially, like, amino acids uh, that are prevalent on Earth, which are the building blocks of proteins. Sure. If you learn which that. Which do, um, like, everything, almost. Yeah. Surprisingly, there are two chiral forms of uh, most amino acids, but all the amino acids within on, on Earth are only of one chirality. It's the L form, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's very interesting, like chirality. Like you know, there there's this other controversy with this drug called thalidomide. It's mm. a very classic example, right? It was uh, uh, in one form could treat uh, morning sickness and right. anxiety and stuff like that, but the other form actually caused birth defect defects. Yeah, this was a big deal back what in the seventies. Uh, yeah, it? something like yeah. that. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, with, with all this stuff about chirality, it turns out uh, a lot, there's a lot of uh, chirality out in space. And so previously we've detected, like, different uh, chiralities in uh, meteorites. Like, they tend to be enriched for L-forms of uh, chiral molecules. Still, we have no idea why, mm. but it tends to be true. Um, but we've actually found, finally found chiral molecules in interstellar space, just out in space. What do you mean chiral molecules? Right. So these are uh, molecules that have chirality that, you know, we don't know if they're either the right-handed or left-handed form of these molecules, um, but we have detected them. Uh, it, the, this molecule is called propylene oxide. Okay. It's just a compound? Yeah, it's a compound, but it's just out in this large cloud, cloud of gas out in the Milky Way. Hmm. And so we haven't been able to tell whether if they're, you know, more enriched for one form or the other, but, you know, ha- the existence of chiral molecules like is just pretty prevalent and you know it'd be very curious to see whether like meteors um they are enriched for one form or the other so it's mm. a pretty exciting discovery yeah that is cool like it may help answer why on earth like we all have just one chiral form of amino acids so the, so they how do they actually know that they're chiral in this case right so it, they just simply detected the uh the the absorbance uh spectra uh-huh. of uh, light passing through this cloud and then so they dete- they could to use that to detect that propylene oxide exists in these clouds and propylene oxide and we know is just, what, the, yeah, exactly. what the different chiralities of propylene exactly. oxide already look like exactly interesting so pretty pretty cool yeah that is cool yeah huh all right all right, well, once again, this has been the Grok Science Show. You're listening to WHPK 88.5 FM.